I was 33 years old when I received a phone call from the Baptist Sunday School Board, as it was called in those days, asking me to leave the church in Liberty, Missouri, where I had been a pastor for nine years, and assumed the position of editor of the Deacon Magazine in Nashville. It was a difficult decision for Connie and me, for we had given our all to this congregation for nearly a decade. For three months, I put them off, delaying our decision, but finally, they called and said, we've got to know what you're going to do. So we decided to go. Not long after settling in Nashville, I was driving along a country road en route to a speaking engagement when I rounded a curve and saw before me a little white frame church building. A beautiful little building, rather like something you might see on a postcard. But upon seeing it, I had an interesting reaction. My stomach tightened and I tensed, almost as though I had come upon a wild animal that threatened to devour me. After this happened in other settings two or three more times, it finally made sense. These little church buildings were indeed threats. Threats in the sense that I had given so much of myself over so long a time that it had consumed me. I was burned out. Pastoral sabbaticals, which provided extended time away to study, pray, and be spiritually and, and physically refreshed, in those days were nearly unheard of. The stresses a pastor feels are real and can be all-consuming unless we are smart enough to take action against them. Two cartoons which appeared in Leadership Magazine a few years ago illustrate the point I'm trying to make. In the first, a doctor and nurses surround a figure lying prone in the operating room. The figure has lifted his head with wide eyes, rather like a deer in the headlights, and into the operating room has burst two church members carrying a carpet sample, saying, Pastor, just thought we'd let you see the carpet we picked for the youth room. In the second, the pastor is in a hospital room into which a nurse has cheerfully entered saying, Good news, Reverend. I just got a call from the deacons who are meeting. They are going to pray for your recovery. The vote was five to four. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not attempting to generate sympathy for myself or for Pastor Kristen, nor for our new pastor-to-be. The truth is, every job carries with it stresses and responsibilities. We all know that. Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, a banker, a teacher, or a stocker at a grocery store, responsibilities come to you and stresses are associated with those. But consider what it would be like to be a pastor, responsible to channel the energies and foci of an all-volunteer group of people who are not required to even show up if they don't want to. And not only that, they are completely free to criticize anything they're not happy about. You are responsible for keeping them excited about giving their money and their time to the Lord through the church. And when conflicts occur, as they sometimes do when human beings are involved, it's your job to help sort things out. A task made all the more difficult when the pastor is himself or herself the subject of the conflict. Not only that, but when people are grieving or hurting, you grieve and hurt with them. And then there's preaching. And the need to remember your sermons. Every week has a Sunday. Have you noticed that? When you're a preacher, you are very definitely aware of that. Someone referred to this as the relentless return of the Sabbath. Every Sunday, you have to prepare and deliver a sermon. It should be deep and meditative and humorous and entertaining and brief. Let's face it, who in their right mind would want that kind of a job description? It's no wonder that seminaries are universally reporting that the numbers of students preparing for the pastorate have fallen steadily in recent years. In spite of this, however, Paul begins his words about pastors saying, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. He proceeds then to provide character traits that should be a part of every pastor's makeup. Paul does this also when he wrote his pastoral letter to Titus in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And while what he said to Titus is not identical with what he said to Timothy, the two lists are similar enough that he's unmistakably describing the same position. 
Peter also provides a kind of job description. He says a pastor should tend the flock in a way that God would approve, should not be motivated by money, should not be autocratic in leadership, and should be an example to the church. 1 Peter 5, 1-3. Three Greek words are used in the New Testament to describe pastoral leadership. Presbyteros, translated ordinarily elder. Episkopos, translated overseer or bishop. And poimen, which is translated as shepherd. Sometimes these words are used to describe the same person, which is how we are sure they describe the office of pastor. In Acts chapter 20, all three terms are used interchangeably. In verse 17 of that chapter, Paul assembles the elders, presbyteros, of the church to give them his farewell message. In verse 28 of that chapter, he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to shepherd, poimene, the church of God. So in speaking to the elders, he says, Be overseers and shepherd the church of God. So the broad expectations of a pastor are that he or she will oversee the operations and ministries of the church, will be an example of Christian living to the church, and as a shepherd tends his flock, a pastor will guide and provide. But let's look briefly at the specifics listed for Timothy. You noticed, as I read the scriptures, no doubt, the specific male language Paul uses. And we have to ask ourselves, is he saying that only men can serve as pastors? Well, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention says, Yes, that's right. But in our day and age, that hardly seems right, does it? I mean, in our age, women serve as head of nations. They lead corporations. They are doctors and pilots and firefighters and soldiers and, well, you, you name it. What can they not do? Well, if we take Paul's words literally, they can't be pastors. But before we jump to that conclusion based on social conditions 2,000 years ago, Let's think through this and look more closely 
at what Paul might have, say, might have said in word and by action in other places. Now, I have and you have a deep reverence for Scripture. I believe it to be the inspired word from God. So I don't mess with it lightly. So when I read something I don't understand, I have to ask, what does this mean? And compare that to other places in the scripture to try to gain a balance and understanding of what is being said. So in this case, Paul is addressing men as pastors, but we have to ask, is he describing what was, or is he saying what has to be? Listen to his other words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3.28. Or hear him as he calls, deacon, calls Phoebe a deacon in the church of Rome. Or consider his regard for Priscilla and Aquila. Only once does he mention Aquila first. The rest of the time, Priscilla is mentioned first. In your mind's eye, watch as Paul discovers a woman named Lydia leading a worship gathering on the outskirts of Philippi because there was no synagogue in the city. She was the first to become a Christ follower and be baptized there. And she opened her home to Paul and his companions. From the pages of the New Testament, three infallible truths emerge about gender. First, the Holy Spirit gifts all believers in ministry. Second, all believers are referred to as priests, as when we are referred to as the priesthood of all believers, all believers. And thirdly, humility, service, and mutual submission are required of all believers. The words of Paul addressed to Timothy 2,000 years ago reflect the social conditions and understandings of that age. Just as when Paul wrote, slaves obey your masters. Was Paul saying that there should be slaves in every age? 
I don't think so. He was simply saying what was common to that age. Slaves, obey your masters. He was not saying that slavery should be practiced at all times and all ages. He was only addressing what was the case at the time. We, of course, have rightly come to the conclusion that thinking that one human being can be owned by another is against the teachings of Jesus. Right? Go like this. Paul goes on to list character traits and convictions he would expect to find in a pastor. The pastor must be above reproach. I'd like that in our pastor to be, wouldn't you? Married only once. Does this mean if he is a widower or she, they can't remarry? No, that's not what it means. It means that the marriage relationship is itself a sacred one and that this pastor of ours will understand the relationship to his wife or her husband is one that must be carefully guarded and taken seriously. It literally says that the pastor should be a one-woman man or we could rephrase a one-man woman. But having that kind of wonderful relationship, pastors to be temperate, not a drunkard, did you notice that? I'm kind of happy about that. I, I don't relish the idea of looking for the pastor in a gutter someplace, do you? I don't think we need to worry about that. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Our stewardship committee is delighted to hear that because, you know, they have wondered how we're going to pay him anyway, or her anyway. Uh, which is to say that as interim pastor, it's my responsibility to say, give! You, you heard that, didn't you? I don't need to repeat that, right? That's our responsibility. The pastor isn't to be a lover of money, but neither are we. We're supposed to give it cheerfully to the Lord through the church and support the pastor. Got it? You all are sharp. 
The pastor must manage his own household well. As Paul says, if he can't manage his household, how can he manage the church? He must not be a recent convert. must be well thought of by outsiders. Well, these are the responsibilities the pastor has to us, but we also have responsibilities to the pastor. In Hebrews chapter 13, listen. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He goes on to say, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. So our responsibility is to pray for our leaders, to listen to them. We are not subservient in the sense that they are autocratic leaders and we have to hop to it every time they say something. This is a a relationship of mutual service and mutual submission. We listen to them and allow God to guide us in our reception of their words and the honor we bestow upon them. We will listen carefully. We will obey as those who are not slaves, but those who are in a good relationship. And we will trust that God will lead us to the right individual. Isn't that right? Surely, we would agree with all these traits. In the past, we have enjoyed good pastoral relationships. And this morning during our moments of silent meditation, let's implore the Lord to lead his choice of a pastor to us. <laughs> 